Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Laura Stark, professor at Vanderbilt University. I had the great pleasure of interviewing Grace Davey about her recent book, Poverty Knowledge in South Africa, A Social History of Human Science, 1855-2005, to which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2014. Grace Davey is associate professor of history at Queens College, City University of New York. Poverty is political, not only in how it's debated, but how it's conceptualized and measured in the first place. Grace Davy follows the history of what she calls the poverty question in areas currently known as South Africa from the middle of the 19th century through the formal end in 1994 of the state-sanctioned racial discrimination known as apartheid and into the new millennium. The book file follows two processes to show how the poverty question could remain perpetually unsettled. First, it explores how the poverty concept was created and recreated at different moments in time. Second, It looks at how poverty evidence has been authorized and marshaled by various groups and individuals over time, political leaders, labor unions, activist groups, church organizations, and scientists themselves who only occasionally aligned with state agencies. So the story that Grace Davy tells is not a simple chronology, nor is it a story of how governments always preferred quantitative evidence over qualitative evidence, as many histories would have it. Instead, Davy proposes the term epistemic mobility, to signal the process through which claims about what makes credible evidence continually toggled over time from statistics to stories and back again. So for anyone following the discussion of climate denialism at the current political moment, I would add that the concept of epistemic mobility can come in pretty handy. And one final note. What I especially admired about the book is it doesn't shy away from the questions of social justice and the delicate matter of how academics might respond politically to their own research findings. This interview is a collective effort. I read Davies' Poverty Knowledge along with graduate students in my seminar called Social Studies of Science, Technology, and Medicine. My co-interviewers were Tessa Eidelman, Christy Troutman, Molly Moreau, Alexis Mundo, Mary Catherine Robinson, Nivi Tazamarasan, Megan Ward, and Trixie Yabit. Thanks for joining us. So thank you again for making time to chat. And um, we just really enjoyed reading the book and have lots of questions for you, some of which I was able to, to send yesterday. What I want to do first, though, is just give you a sense of our context, like physically how we're, we're set up and who we are. Mm-hmm. So this, this is a, a graduate class at Vanderbilt on new approaches to science and technology studies in particular. Okay. So I should say that anytime you feel like um, drawing out discussions that are particularly acute in um, African studies and African history, since it's not our, our special 
our specialty, that would be super because we're going to be uh, sort of quiet on those sorts of debates, um, but we'd love to hear more. Okay, but, wonderful. So the students in the class, hello, everybody, by the way. Hi. Hi. Can you tell me about how many students are in the class and um, dis- and disciplines? Uh, are you sort of science studies students or? Actually, um, we uh, I thought there's eight people, so we thought they would each go around and just say their name and give you a ballpark idea of where they're where they're coming from. Excellent. Okay. okay. Super. Tessa, you want to start off? Sure. So hi, I'm, I'm Tessa. Um, I'm. I'm a PhD student in a program called Community Research in Action, which is an applied social science degree. I'm actually from South Africa, and I'm studying mm-hmm. issues of, of housing and social justice in Cape Town. Hi, I'm Trixie. I'm a graduate student in the Medicine, Health, and Society Department here at Vanderbilt, and um, my research is focused around refugee resettlement and really looking at this time period and seeing how it's changing. Hi, my name's Christy. Um, I'm actually an undergraduate student, but I'm entering into the Medicine, Health, and Society Master's Program here at Vanderbilt next year. Hi, I'm Alexis. I'm also an undergraduate student, and I'm entering the same program next year. Hi, I'm Mary Catherine, and I'm a graduate student in Medicine, Health, and Society, and my research is focused on education and the relationship between stress and education. Hi, I'm Molly. I'm a graduate student in the Medicine, Health, and Society department as well, and my research focuses on the medicalization of female sexual desire disorder. Hi, I'm Megan. Um, I'm also in the Medicine, Health, and Society graduate program. Um, My research is um, surrounding addiction and recovery. Okay. Hi, I'm the last one. My name is Nibby. I'm also in the Medicine, Health, and Society graduate program, and my research is on Syrian women uh, within Syria and Lebanon. Okay, fantastic. So I think that this afternoon I inspired some of uh, Mary Catherine's research by the stress with the computer <laughs> that we were having. So we had we had a group building exercise here. <laughs> um, so Grace, I just wanted um, we have we have lots of questions and about your your research process and your framework and what you're working on now and these sorts of things. But it, I um, I wondered whether it's okay if we just start recording um, and maybe mm-hmm. it'll work for the for the new books network and we'll be uh, sort of centering, of course, on poverty knowledge in South Africa, your wonderful book. Um, but really, feel free just to keep it casual and open out in any directions that that you like. Okay, well, thank you so much for asking me to participate in the discussion. And, um, you know, I'm thrilled that you engaged with the book, and I really appreciated your very smart questions. I have to be honest, I only had a few moments. I just gave a midterm to 50 students in my African history survey, and I have a conference on Friday. So I have to admit I did not get to spend a lot of time um, uh sort of preparing, so my my comments might be a little all over the place, but uh, I'm so excited that you found the book interesting, and I'm thrilled to talk about it with you. We really enjoyed reading it, and we're, we're eager to keep the, the conversation pretty free-flowing. So I wanted to start off just by giving you a sense of how we read the book coming out of um, STS. And so Looking at it, the book is about poverty knowledge in South Africa over a long period of time. So you're looking at changes from the middle of the 19th century until really into the 21st century. And you're interested in the in poverty knowledge as both a concept, so how conceptually this changed over time, and then in addition to that, what counted as legitimate evidence of uh, of poverty. So I wonder if you could start off by talking about this really important term that you use, which is epistemic mobility, and the idea that stories and statistics really factor in throughout the period that you're looking at. What are you getting at with epistemic mobility? Mm. Well, thank you for asking me that, um, especially because I think of the the STS concept in the book that seems to me to kind of jump out as an STS concept is the concept of co-production. But as I was writing the book, epistemic mobility became such a helpful phrase and idea for me. Um, when I started this, so this book started as a seminar paper in, in my second year of grad school at the University of Michigan. And I wanted to write about the history of the social sciences in South Africa. And I thought one way to do that would be to follow the poverty line 
uh, from its sort of importation and um, uh, construction in South Africa in the late 30s and early 40s in Cape Town with the first household survey of Cape Town. Um, and that I, in a sort of Latourian sense, I might follow that social technical actor, you know, out of the university context into fieldwork situations and then into political debates. And I and I did do that in the book, but then I also realized um, as I was researching and writing that there was, along with quantitative evidence of poverty, there was this other kind of um, uh, competing uh, uh, archive of knowledge and information, qualitative information. And so I, I became just really curious about how these two kinds of knowledge were pitted against one another, were competing, were um, always in kind of tension and dialogue, and what, you know, how to understand um, over this long period of time how different kinds of claims about poverty were, were marshaled and were negotiated. Um, so, yeah, I... Um, with epistemic mobility, I think the best way, I think I compare it at one point to um, bickering twins. Um, or I think of these, of quantitative knowledge and qualitative knowledge as always kind of linked together in debates about poverty in South Africa. Um, and I think it's, it's just really important, I think, to recognize because otherwise poverty experts and, ad, and advocates and activists can get kind of caught off guard by the complexity of the question. You know, if it seems that the debate is settled, it's not settled because this other sources of information can be brought to the surface and used to challenge, um, uh, you know, whatever in a particular moment is considered the legitimate uh, uh the legitimate knowledge of, of the issue. So I just wanted to kind of make people think about that instability in the poverty question and what does that, what does that mean politically uh, and ethically. One of the things that I liked so much about the term of epistemic mobility is precisely the fact that it did seem like a term that could be so useful for other topics and other domains of research and thinking about the issues of how it's uh, productive in in certain times for certain political actors to keep debates unstable. So thinking about how this concept would be really useful for people in STS looking at climate change, for example, mm. and yeah. how, how refusing, and you mentioned climate change in your epilogue as mm -hmm. sort of one area where you have debates um, unsettled. The the issue of um, this separate or uh, not necessarily separate but additional layer of sort of a more a more hidden archive or shadow archive in which you have qualitative um, evidence coming up alongside quantitative evidence was so interesting, especially in characters that you show like uh, Batson, who mm -hmm. seemed to be one of the first. Uh, sort of social science uh, proper self-identifying human scientists mm -hmm. in South Africa um, where he took the idea of um, objectivity equaling statistics quite seriously and yet he was doing it by looking at the um, the the through field surveys the stories that people were telling I was really curious about this actual archive it sounds like a remarkable resource these cards that showed the mm -hmm. survey results and along these lines Molly actually was uh, wanting to ask a little bit more broadly about the research process and what it looked like to produce a book that covers such a long period of time so you organize your book chronologically and thematically, and you provide a lot of really, really detailed information about the relevant individuals and how mm -hmm. they contributed to the poverty question. So I'm just mm -hmm. wondering, what was the research process to gather all this data like? Oh, it was such a journey, Molly. <laughs> um, it was, I mean, as a process, it was just, uh, I feel incredibly grateful that I had the opportunity to do this research, and I learned from so many people. I had so much help along the way. The research project was really um, uh, all-encompassing, and it took a lot. You know, it it did take a long time. I I, I decided to 
it started as a dissertation, but I, as I was revising it as a book, um, I thought I was going to end in the 80s, and then I decided I really needed to bring it up to the present. So um, the research process for me involved um, trying to just throw myself into the question of how do people think about poverty over this long period of time. You know, um, uh, E.P. Thompson's idea of the working class, uh, it's not that it's a thing that suddenly just appears, working class consciousness. It takes a long, long time for people to start to have a feeling that there's something, they have some sort of similar experience that could be described as a class experience. And so, I, I mean, I, uh, I'm not sure if I was thinking about that at the time, but I think... Um, I think when I, you know, as I was visiting all these archives, when I, I spent, a, uh, thanks to, uh, I'm very grateful to Social Science Research Council and Fulbright that allowed me to spend almost two years uh, in South Africa as a graduate student, and I, I just tried to go to all the archives I could that I thought would show me not just the published reports, but the sort of production of knowledge, and also, you know, government archives where you where I could sit and read testimony to state commissions of inquiry and see how um, chiefs and missionaries and uh, educators were talking to um, representatives of the state about what they were seeing in their local areas. And also just, again, just talking to as many people as I could, act, student activists, labor leaders, um, uh, academics today, and just trying to um, get a sense of how these ideas cohere but also don't cohere and what were the moments. Uh, I, think it, I think as it was coming together into a dissertation, I, I realized I, I needed to focus on the moments when the conversation seemed to flip you know, um, for a period in the in the late um, uh, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, qualitative evidence of poverty, especially white poverty, was treated as quite legitimate. And Afrikaner nationalists were ready to say, it's not um, uh, one number that we need in, in order to understand the so-called poor white question. We need to listen to poor whites. We need to understand why they're um, losing their racial identity or why they're at risk of sort of uh, degeneration and also how they could be lifted up. And But then there was a, a flip in terms of quantitative knowledge becoming... Um, uh, becoming the standard bearer, and that happens uh, not, you know, I, don't, I certainly don't see South Africa in isolation. It was in many parts of the world uh, in the 30s and 40s after the Great Depression, the Worldwide Depression, that there was a demand for um, objective, scientific knowledge of standards of living that could be compared. But then it flips again uh, in South Africa with the liberation struggle and with um, uh, the black consciousness movement with um, a major, what I think is a really important general strike in Durban in 1973, and with the drive to sort of understand how to end apartheid, you know, what kind of knowledge would be effective in um, finally achieving sanctions internationally and enforcing some kind of um, some kind of change. So I think um, in terms of the research process, I think what helped me to write the book is just to give myself the time and, and sort of um, be patient with myself in terms of sitting with and sort of uh, sitting with the, the messiness of all the evidence and and just, um, you know, taking the time to see how did it come together. And I certainly, uh, when I started to write the book, I didn't imagine that I would be writing a book um, in which I argued that disruptive protest is really key to the making of human science knowledge. I think I only learned that by, um, by immersing myself in, uh, in the realities of, of South Africa over the 20th century. Um, 
So the process is, was messy and often very challenging, um, but I, you know, I was just really lucky to um, have been trained as an undergraduate by historians of South Africa, Clifton Craze and Pamela Scully, and then to be at the University of Michigan where they were just very inspiring um, people and really provocative questions about colonialism and about how to understand um, knowledge in relation to colonial power. So um, the process was really transformative. I feel like writing this book kind of made me a different a different person. Um, so I think it's it's really my advice to graduate students is to really pick something that you are excited and passionate about, and also find a, a kind of archive that seems to go on forever because um, uh, those are the archives where you know there's there's it it's it's good i think as a student to to find a question where there's much more that than you could say you would need an endless number of books to be able to really where the where the question itself has no has no sort of end and i felt like that with this project it could just go on forever um, sometimes I wish I was able to write a book that wasn't 300 pages um, <laughs> and that summed up everything in 50, but um, maybe my next book will be shorter. <laughs> well, it so nicely showed the dynamic, and um, one of the things that we were remarking on as we were reading the book is just going through your footnotes. The, um, the material that you were looking at and had access to, it just did seem like multiple dissertations, multiple books could be written and um, especially the field survey materials that you were looking at were just really tremendous. One of the things that I especially admired about the book is that you don't actually start it when human scientists proper mm. um, are on the scene. You actually begin the book by talking about how there are ways of uh, figuring and thinking about want and uh, sort of destitution that were already on the ground that actually human scientists had to plug into when they were mm-hmm. arriving from this more international scene of uh, social science uh, survey mm-hmm. methods that were taking off. And mm-hmm. you show that there were, the book is sort of bookended by two different Carnegie Commission reports mm-hmm. and show really nicely how in the first report early on around the turn into the 20th century, um, one of the the concepts that actually was really stabilized along with poverty as a concept was the idea of the poor white, and that this was always in contrast to the idea that actually non-whites did not experience poverty, or it was it was something else um, when it was discussed in terms of them that it was simply their primitive. Um, natural inclination and primitive circumstances. So poverty seemed to be um, inflected with the um, sort of this racial hierarchy as well. Uh, so this prompted some other uh, questions that we had about your, your key terms. Okay. Um, so you mentioned this a minute ago, but throughout your Who book... Who is this again? Can you just reintroduce yourself? Yes. Megan, okay. Hi. Yes. Go Hi. ahead. Um, Hi. So... Throughout your book, um, you kind of use this term co-production, which you mentioned a minute ago, um, as a major theme. Um, could you just tell our listeners kind of what that term means um, and how exactly it fits into your analysis um, of poverty knowledge in the book? Mm. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so I use co-production in a very general way to say that we have to if we're going to write about the history of human science, which involves experts trying to understand human consciousness and social life, then we have to be ready to see how those experts are, are sort of pushed and pulled by the people that they're writing about and their ideas and their ways of talking about um, their experiences. I was, I've been really inspired recently by this short and very beautifully written essay by Laurent Dubois uh, called Enslaved Enlightenment, uh, which really argues that slaves contributed to the Enlightenment, and so did slave revolts, and so did the writings of plantation owners who were concerned uh, about slavery in the black Atlantic and the Atlantic world. And so and I think... Um, I think I was trying to do something somewhat similar as writers who write about the Black Atlantic 
in the sense that I wanted to insist, and of course scholars in subaltern studies, I wanted to insist that people who do not leave written documents still contribute to the shaping of um, expert knowledge, the shaping of the categories used by the state, and that even though it's very difficult to recover um, their influence um, on written documents and on scientific categories, it's still incumbent on us to try and to ask the question. I think the, one of the real weaknesses in this book is that I don't speak African languages. Um, I lived in Harare in the, for a semester. I was lucky to be able to study abroad in Zimbabwe when I was an undergraduate, and I, I studied E.C. Shona. I had, before I went to South Africa in Washington, D.C., I had an E.C. Kosa tutor, and I learned some greetings and, and some, you know, a few basic words. I did a summer course on, uh, in Afrikaans, thinking that would help me in the archives, reading documents, and I cannot speak any of those languages. I mean, I'm just a total failure at language in terms of uh, my own abilities. So I think one of the real limitations in this book is that I'm relying on what uh, I'm relying on text and translation, and so. To the extent I'm able to hear African voices in the archives, it's often in translation, it's very mediated, and of course, a lot of this sort of testimony that I'm looking at was, um, was sort of um, uh, given in situations where um, people were trying to negotiate getting something from the government or trying to deal with, you know, um, the effects of the mining industry on their life with the past system, with um, lack of housing, with um, inflation. And so there, there are all these ways in which um, I'm really not able ever, and I don't, I'm not sure one ever can, but I'm never able to get to a sort of pure, uh, unmediated um, uh, indigenous experience. And I, and I, hopefully I don't pretend to do that in the book, but, but I certainly think it's, um, essential to ask the question of, you know, how do people who are not treated as experts, not treated as authorities, still shaping expert categories? Um, so that was what took me back um, to the mid-19th century. Uh, I thought I was going to start in the 40s, and then it seemed clear that I really had to understand uh, the production of social science in this broader colonial context. I hope that made sense. Yeah, absolutely. The um, the idea that there are um, that there is not only um, di- different stories being told, but that the evidence itself is changing. Mm-hmm. So it's moving from quantitative to qualitative. Mm-hmm. Um, Seem to be like one of the really the nice themes. Uh, yeah, you mentioned climate. Can I just jump jump yeah, back to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, in terms of epistemic mobility, I think it could be useful to people looking at debates about rising temperatures because there's always that tension. I think, uh, for me, I think epistemic mobility could be applied to any um, scientific problem where there's just deep and enduring unsettledness, unsettledness over evidence, you know, what kind of evidence really counts. And I think with climate, you do see there's times, there's moments where, you know, the the um, atmospheric, uh, you know, hard science data is treated as the most credible, but there's other moments where it's, you know, flooded streets or drought um, or, you know, deaths due to heat waves or, you know, the the way that the air feels or, the, you know, the look of the landscape. There's times when it's your own personal firsthand evidence that is taken as more credible. So there is, I think, there that tension. Also, um, I would love, I think in a way, epistemic mobility could be used to explore debates in American history about the founding fathers. Because if you think about the long, long dispute over Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, the question was whose story counted. Was it the documents, the sort of official documents left by Jefferson and people around him, or was it the stories that people told about his relationship with Sally Hemings that were transmitted orally? Um, and, you know, ultimately the DNA evidence showed that there was this relationship that had been talked about for so long. I don't know. I think there's so many 
um, sort of questions about that involve um, unsettled debates where there is this kind of tension over evidence. Yeah, and it seems like in for all of the accounts in the line of um, sort of the great work by Ted Porter, which you're very sympathetic mm. to, and almost raising a temptation to think that there was a march, uh, a progressive march, where the state was mm-hmm. increasingly using quantitative evidence as the most credible and most authoritative. I mean, you're showing not only in the early period, but also in the later period, that that political leaders were constantly toggling back and forth um, at mm-hmm. these different moments. I mean, one of the one of the issues is in terms of doing a history of a concept is the idea of there being sort of a, a residual of earlier periods mm-hmm. uh, of of some ideas that stay with a concept. And um, Mary Catherine was thinking in these terms and wanted to explore this a little bit more. Okay, uh, you guys are asking such wonderful questions. This is very gratifying for me to hear you respond to the book, so thank you. Um, could you elaborate on the different frameworks you use to engage with this research, like when you started and just throughout the research process? Mm. Yeah, there were a lot of different frameworks. Was there one, um, tell me your name again, it's Mary. Mary Catherine. Mary Catherine, yeah, were there were there specific frameworks that you were noticing or that you wanted me to comment um, on? <laughs> uh, any of them, I any mean, just them. like what your initial thought was, but we... Um, connected to hacking a few times. Oh, okay. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Maybe um, the looping dynamic idea? Yes. Yeah, so that was really important to me. Hacking's work was just so inspiring to me as a student and when I was thinking through the data. So his idea of looping dynamics, I think it's really easy to grasp. And I think once you think about it, you realize it's happening all the time. And the basic idea is that expert categories, expert knowledge becomes the way we talk about our own lives. We start to rewrite our our life story using a diagnosis or uh, a finding or um, a term that is put out by health experts or by, you know, other kinds of experts. So, for example, um, you know, uh, I think... Um, psychologists have looked at resiliency. You know, there's been a lot of research in the last 10 years on resiliency. What makes communities and people resilient? Foundations kind of jump on board and they offer grants. And then people write grants and they make arguments that they are resilient and they sort of think about themselves and their lives. And there's all kinds of ways in which people organ- start organizing using expert um, categories. Uh, certainly you see that in my book where people are talking about living under under the poverty datum line. Um, and so there's a way in which looping, you can think about looping dynamics. Or, um, Barry Bar- a sociologist of knowledge, Barry Barnes, wrote about this as well. It's not only Ian Hacking. Um, and also um, Kurt Denzinger, um, Canadian historian of human science and psychology, has written, psychiatry, has written about this too. That it's, I think it's a really powerful concept, you know, that scientific categories become the way we make claims uh, in our everyday life. And, and also the way in which, you know, governments begin to or- try to organize society using scientific concepts. But I think, for me, epistemic mobility is different because it's about the inherent instability within a concept like poverty. Um, so as I was saying before, um, uh, I started to feel I really needed to understand what exactly cause this instability and how, you know, at the end of the book, I end with a discussion of uh, debate about development. Um, and I, I just noticed that, you know, these representations and questions and, and even like words seem to kind of come back. In the, in the 1980s and 1990s, there was uh, these representations of poverty that seemed to be recuperated from the, from the 20s and 30s. Um, so I think... Um, both epistemic mobilities and the and the the Foucauldian concept of archives of knowledge is um, uh, helpful for me in terms of trying to just find some way to talk about the layers um, uh, 
within a scientific concept that go back quite far in time. And it can, yeah, it can be kind of like hidden, can suddenly kind of pop up again, um, which I think in a lot of ways my book is kind of challenging ideas about authorship and authority because I think there's certain SCS concepts that could allow you to think that experts really have a lot of agency. They really sort of um, set out with their plans and then they go forward, they enroll allies and they kind of create new fieldwork situations and they, they, they um, you know, write, they sort of prescribe behavior with their technologies. And what I was trying to show is, look, experts are really embedded in all kinds of complex dynamics, including revolutionary um, dynamics in, in a society like South Africa, where people absolutely wanted to be free. And they were, you know, there was such an incredible and sustained effort to change the government and to change um, change racist institutions at every level of society. So because of those intense dynamics, experts cannot, um, you know, should not expect and shouldn't, I don't think should be described as people who are able to just set out, uh, able to just kind of create society um, in according to their own image. So and I think in a way my book was a call for humility. And when we think about the role of experts, it is very, very easy to assume that, that knowledge equals power and that quantification is always going to give um, states more power. And both with the debates about the poor, the so-called poor white question in South Africa and at the end of apartheid, there were times when um, government agencies were, were um, much more animated by qualitative knowledge, by, by stories, by life experience. Uh, and I think I just think it's really important to pay attention to these complexities, or again, we can kind of be like caught off guard. Um, if you see how people in the past um, struggled and wrestled with the poverty question, I think it it can maybe give um, people today and in the future a little bit more uh, um, sort of patience with the with the difficulties of ever coming up with a, a totally compelling argument. It so much depends on the context and on the, the kinds of political forces that, that are in play. Uh, yeah, on the issue of the, the context, one of the things that seemed so uh, relevant in all of the, the story, well, the early stories as well as the later stories, was just the presumption that there should be a stable labor force. And that was mm-hmm. uh, so much of the driving. Um, it drove the way in which poverty was figured. I mean, it, it was uh, mm-hmm. the sort of questions that they were trying to address. So many of these concepts, the epistemic mobility and co-production are so useful for looking at other topics. But mm-hmm. we were wondering, and Trixie was wondering in particular, about the specificity of South Africa. So she's going to take mm-hmm. the floor. Um, yeah. as I was, can I just jump in? As I was writing the book, I felt like I learned so much about American society. That's what was such a revelation. How that, so? Well, I, and I want to hear Trixie's question. I'm dying to hear Trixie's question, but I think, um, yes, in South Africa, it's quite distinctive. You, you know, every place is different, but and the rapid um, industrialization of the southern continent with the expansion of the mining industry created... Um, social labor dynamics that were different than in other places. But I think in, just to jump onto your question about um, the creation of a stable labor force, um, of course this isn't the only place where, it, where this happened. And um, it was just so how so? I mean, I think there's so many different ways in which racial capitalism uh, in South Africa is is quite similar to the way to racial capitalism in the United States. And, uh, you know, many people have made these connections over the years and comparisons over the years. There's George uh, Fredrickson's wonderful comparative book. and But in, in terms of um, this, you know, creation of a stable labor force, um, uh, in a way that is almost um, shocking if you, if you go at it um, in a sort of liberal with a, a liberal mindset that poverty experts were interested in, in sort of social uplift or development, it, it's, it can be sort of shocking to see that a lot of the early conversations about poverty in South Africa are really about how to keep workers 
healthy enough that they were they could uh, reliably produce profits for um, mining companies, but how to make how to give them the cheapest possible diets. You know, how to make sure that people in the labor exporting areas and the so-called native reserves, later Bantu stands, were healthy enough that um, they would be, uh, you know, they would be uh, valuable to the economy, but, but without investing uh, in a way that would lead to, that, you know, had anything to do with full citizenship. So it's, South African history is so stark and, um, you know, morally just outrageous that, um, I think it can wake you up if you are not looking for these things in your own society. So, I've, again, I just feel really grateful that I had the chance to, to think about these things um, and looking at another country, and it, and it made me much more curious about how scientific concepts and, and expert knowledge has been formulated in, in this country. I think because I grew up in the United States, um, I was born in Washington, D.C., I, I think there's a lot of things I – it was hard to see because it was so close sometimes going someplace else it allows you to see look again at your own life For so any- i got off track there <laughs> did, you, did you want to ask me ask me your question yeah trix is going to go for it um and we we're just also commenting mm-hmm. that um reading the book it, for anyone who's ever doubted the um the recentness and the acuteness of white supremacist thinking mm-hmm. i mean the mm-hmm. the evidence that you show is just Really, really shocking. But here's here's Trixie. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I was wondering, with your academic background in African history, what was distinct about the concept of parvenage in South Africa specifically that inspired your work? Can you repeat the first part of the question, Trixie? Um, yeah, so what was distinct about the concept of poverty knowledge in South Africa specifically that inspired your work? Um, wait, compared to... Just considering your academic background in African oh, okay. history. Oh, in Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sometimes people who write about South Africa are accused of exceptionalism, as if South Africa is such a special place that, it, um, that you know, and they need to have a broader transnational perspective. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, maybe I'm uh, getting a little tired. I'm not sure I totally understand the question. Um, I was wondering just, um, like, what stood out to you about um, Poverty knowledge in South Africa. Maybe another way Compared to, to maybe yeah, another way to so ask. I'm sorry. I, I um, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's like midterm time here, and uh, I think my brain is on the fritz. Can yeah, jump in, Laura. Yeah, no, I, I um, maybe another way to phrase it is just to sort of ask about what sorts of what parts of the story don't transfer. Like, you know, like what are the oh. what are the contingencies that just w- wouldn't work somewhere else? Because so so much of the postcolonial literature also wants to caution against sort of treating the global south as one homogenous Absolutely. category. And so it's it's the um, it's sort of the the difficulty that we're sort of processing ourselves as a class of being able to make broad even social justice claims and having useful concepts that you can move across different case studies mm-hmm. but then pointing to real specifics um, that make make a context distinctive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so, so maybe the labor, the labor issue, and the extreme, the extremity of the racial hierarchy and the rigidity of it is maybe uh, part of the answer of the distinctiveness of South Africa. Yeah, maybe so. I also think there are. I really believe in culture is a real thing. I mean, South Africa is such a vibrant, colorful, amazing culture, I, and such a complex place. I mean, the longer I was there, the less I felt like I understood what was going on. Um, so, in terms of what's distinctive about South Africa and translating, you know, categories and ideas like, across different contexts, I, I am. A, I agree with you that we should not homogenize the global south. I'm not even sure global south is a term we should be using. I think. <laughs> Fair um, enough, yeah. yeah, I think. I mean, when I think of what's distinctive about South Africa, I think of like the personalities and just such um, such brave, committed people. I, in terms of intellectuals there and intellectual activists, there were just people who committed their lives, who were both, you know, Z.K. Matthews, both um, anthropologists, 
you know, great leader of African University, but also helped to co-write the Freedom Charter and went to jail. They're, you know, Ruth first, people who gave their lives for freedom in South Africa. And I think what's distinctive about it, maybe what's distinctive about it is that, you know, it, the um, white minority... Uh, which is also not hom- homogenous, by the way. White hom- minority was was so determined to hold on to power um, and had, you know, backed itself into such a corner by by the 1980s that it really took incredibly creative, brilliant, inspired leadership and sustained leadership, and also, you know, collaborative movement building across all these different locations internationally to to end um, to to end white minority rule. So I think what one of the things that's, that's distinctive about it is that the fight for democracy took so long and took um, you know um, was driven forward by all these different generations of of people and not just leaders but you know people um, who were taking action. Um, you know, in all kinds of local ways that never make it into the historical record or into the, you know, that the media never picks up on. So uh, I think one of the things that makes South Africa distinctive is just um, the the commitment to uh, what you might call grassroots organizing, uh, to associations, to, um, to democratic um, consultation, to, and also to, to protest. I mean, people there for a long, long time have been willing to take risks, to organize, to speak out. Um, so it's a very inspiring place um, to, to study, um, you know, a, a question like poverty. I think your answer is also helping uh, me and maybe the others also realize that one of the things you're trying to do is to avoid sort of the pitfall of falling into an exceptionalist narrative, into a South mm-hmm. African exceptionalist narrative. So that's actually um, really clarifying things for me. I mean, the story continues to unfold, and uh, Tessa, mm. Tessa was remarking about this in particular. So I was your analysis takes us to all the way to 2005, and then in your epilogue you're um, speaking all the way to... 2013, but I was wondering, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you were writing this book today, and if you were extending your analysis beyond um, beyond 2005, if there were any particular moments or uh, like political events or moments in South African politics that you would want to highlight or draw on um, right now. And what came to my mind was um, the establishment of the national minimum wage, which was described mm-hmm. as not being actually a living wage, um, mm-hmm. as one idea. Um, but uh, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I haven't been thinking. I haven't thought that much about how I would try to bring my analysis up to sort of current events in South Africa. I have to tell you, since I, as I was writing this book, I realized I wanted to write my second book on U.S. history, and it's a, and partly about the, partly a project on the anti global anti apartheid movement, but it's I, I've been totally immersing myself in really different archives and really different issues and I'm trying it's another human history of human science question about um, corporate power and the and the dry, the sort of efforts um, by labor organizers and by so-called corporate researchers to um, understand how corporations think and how um, activists can through various um, methods force corporations to negotiate with unions and also to make like policy changes. So I've been trying. I've been trying as hard as I can to understand American history and uh, and and sort of the history of what are now called union corporate campaigns. So I'm I'm really deep into this new project, and I was really glad to talk with you all today because I hadn't thought about how epistemic mobility is actually central to my new research, but it is because the. The activists um, and the labor organizers and the corporate researchers that I'm I'm learning about and interviewing and 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 um, researching they they were um, really obsessed with trying to get inside the mind of the corporation and the mind of the of the corporate board because they believed uh, they sort of discovered this through trial and error and partly informed by um, the the drive for disinvestment and divestment and sanctions in the South African context, they were convinced that if they could understand what 
corporations really cared about, they could force them to to make some change. And so there, they they're really experimental and trying to understand: is it um, is it sort of psychological, social information that we need, or is it financial information? Do we need to understand their stock prices? Um, so I, I think I'm continuing to be to find the epistemic mobility concept helpful and the idea that you know that the unsettledness of of um, of evidence is both a resource and kind of a danger in political struggle. Um, but I, I have to say, I, um, if you ask me what, how my research applies to what's happening in South Africa today, I'm, I'm, I have to throw up my hands because I, 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 don't, I really um, I feel like South African politics is so um, turbulent and active, and even what's happening um, this week with Zuma, uh, and I, I hear there's going to be major protest on on Friday, um, calling for his ouster. So um, there's so much going on, and I, I I decided to kind of give myself a pass and say, okay, I'm not going to read the the uh, the Mail and Guardian. I'm going to read um, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal <laughs> and try to understand what's been happening um, in this country for my new project. But I, you might ha- you might be able to. I would love to, you know. I wish we could talk all day because I would love to hear a bit more about your students and mm-hmm. and the research they're doing and and also the work that you're. I think um, one of you said you're working on housing in, in Cape Town, so I'd also love to to be in touch with you about that. Yeah, that was Tessa. I'm yeah. sure that um, they'll be in, in in touch offline. Um, just to wrap up, I wanted I wanted mm-hmm. to just ask uh, one uh, one final question. I mean. To comment on uh, sort of stepping out of an analysis of South African uh, current politics, I mean, I think your book shows it's incredibly relevant for thinking about the terms of de- of the debates for today. Um, and so it's, it's just really wonderful um, for those purposes. One of the things that... Um, as people in an academic setting found um, quite striking, was mm-hmm. that the book is as much about the practice of social justice as it is about um, so- social activists and mm-hmm. different um, and different social movements. And so I just have to, to quote you from your epilogue because I found it so um, striking and admirable. And I have to say my epilogue is somewhat aspirational, so there's a lot of big um, ideas there, so I, I, might be embar- I'm, I might blush as you quote me, but go ahead. Okay, all right, so tell, tell us if you blush. Um, the quote is, it's not sufficient for students in the human sciences to learn primarily about debates in their subfields or about the latest and most fashionable research methods. Scholars training to engage in poverty-related research also need to learn politically intentional and anti-racist methods of supporting and participating in grassroots anti-poverty campaigns that are trying to do what successful non-violent revolutions have done in the past to overthrow dictators. So almost taking the activists in your story, some of their elements, as um, as positive models. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I was just wondering what this has looked like for you in your own life as a scholar. What the um, the call to activism for us as scholars? What form does yeah, that take so, in your life? I mean, I think what I would say about scholar activism is that there's so many ways to do scholar activism. And the last thing I would want to do with this book is to come across as if I'm sort of scolding people for not getting out there in the streets. I mean, that's <laughs> that's not at all the tone I'm trying to convey. One of the most important sentences to me in that epilogue is about the real need for understanding. There's a real need for understanding health policy and where it comes from. There's a real need for just deep, nuanced, you know, sophisticated understanding of all kinds of policy issues, of racism, of capitalism, um, of uh, the growth of the financial industry, of, um, you know, um, just all the things that that people are studying. So I, I don't want to um, give the sense that there is just one way to be a scholar activist. So I just mention a couple. Maybe I think way to answer the question might be to mention um, the some of the kinds of scholar activism that I find um, helpful and and 
inspiring to to think about and again just to realize that there's so many different ways to to meld your political convictions with your research um so i think on one is that okay if i approach it that way absolutely okay yeah and then i think i need to run um just checking the time yeah so for example um uh I really love the work of Andrew Ross, who's written about, he's written about a lot of different things, but he's written about um, the global anti-sweatshop movement, organizing on campuses in the 80s and 90s to, you know, deal, to sort of confront the problem of sweatshop labor around the world. And he's a kind of scholar activist where he gets very involved in the organizing, and he goes out with activists, and he's, I, I happened to meet him um, in the, in, during Occupy Wall Street in, in New York City. He was very, Andrew Ross, who's at NYU, was very active in helping to, to promote um, and to create, rather, this group called Strike Debt, which set out to call attention to the student debt crisis and to um, the mortgage crisis and to all the ways in which debt um, is a burden and a kind of source of shame for so many people in different parts of society in different ways. And so he, he and, you know, a lot of people really uh, successful in 2012 and 13 and building on the work other people are doing, kind of calling attention to debt as a problem. And then, you know, going out and organizing events and films and um, nonviolent civil disobedience actions and being out uh, kind of putting their, you know, these, there's all these cliches about it, but, you know, putting your body on the line. But, but I think that's just one way to do it. I mean, another kind of scholar activism uh, is just to um, call attention to silences. Um, my One reason I went to the University of Michigan is that I wanted to work with uh, an anthropologist and historian named David William Cohen, and he, um, he he wrote a book, a series of essays that were just uh, really opened up a lot of questions for a lot of people called The Combing of History. And at the very end, he gives a sort of list of the kinds of silences um, that you find in the historical record and in the ethnographic record. And he inspired lots of people, uh, lots of students. He's, he's a scholar activist in the sense that he, I think of him uh, in that sense because he did so much to empower his students and his colleagues to kind of ask really brave, creative questions and to um, uh, people like Carolyn Hamilton. He also, I think, was in conversation with Michelle Rolf Trio when Trio was writing his wonderful book, Silencing the Past, about the Haitian Revolution. And so, so you know, that you can be a, a kind of, you can do scholar activism that is just committed to exploring silences that are connected to injustice and that are in some way connected to really um, sharp inequalities of in terms of power, and I think just being willing to kind of um, address those silences is a is a really important um, ethical contribution. I, and then I think there's, you know, I w- in terms of the people I was writing about in my book, I was, in a way, I feel like I was radicalized by <laughs> by the activists I was I was researching because they just were so. Um, so uh, uh, spirited in what they were doing. And, you know, for example, Shula Marx and other people who were uh, involved in the Vitz um, uh, social history, the history workshop. So people who in the, you know, 70s and 80s were very much um, involved in the liberation struggle, but doing it in all these really different creative ways, just, you know, showing, helping to, to um, read colonial documents um, sort of against the grain in the sense of finding new information, new readings of the existing historical record that were quite radical and that were moving away from uh, more comfortable um, liberal readings of, of history. So I, those, you know, that collective, um, you know, I, I think, uh, so you, the, one way to do it is to be involved um, with 
to be sort of collaborating with with other um, progressive thinkers who are who are asking uh, important questions. So I could go on and on about it. I mean, I think, gosh, there's so many people who, you know, I guess another another example might be um, Robin Kelly, uh, who, if you know his work. Um, uh, on American history and, and class and race in the U.S. I mean, he's somebody who partners with artists who are doing kind of uh, musicians who are doing kind of um, uh, visionary uh, and quite radical work uh, politically. So there's so many different ways to do it, and I think um, uh, I think I think also you have to be ready to. Uh, there's different sort of um, uh, moments in time, so. One of my hopes is that this book might kind of prepare. Uh, I don't know if uh, how many people will um, in South Africa will will find the book useful, but I I hope some people do, and I hope that in a way it could uh, contribute to scholar activism in the sense of sort of preparing um, people for future struggles. I mean, South Africa has had these incredible dramatic struggles, but there will be future struggles um, over inequality. It's, it's a very, the poverty question is totally unresolved. So I think um, being, having awareness and kind of sensitivity to some of the strange things that have happened in the past and also some of the um, almost miraculous um, things that have happened in the past is, is quite helpful to be sort of resident, ready for, prepared for present and future um, dynamics. Yeah, to see, to see learning and asking questions as a form of protest at times itself. Mm. Grace, thanks so much for your time. You're so generous with us, uh, and we really appreciated the book. Thanks so much. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.